0: And so it was such a joy to be back, but also it was a blessing for me, and I know it was for so many of you, to hear Rob open the word of God and proclaim the word to you yesterday or last week, yeah. He wrapped up the book of Habakkuk for us. I was blessed by hearing the recording of it, Um, and I've heard from many of you that he did an excellent job, so I'm thankful for Rob. thankful to have an elder and multiple elders who can come up here and fill the pulpit, Bring the word of God with power and clarity. So thank you so much, Rob. And uh, yeah, you're up next week, too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Um, as Charlotte said a minute ago, and uh, we, we're done with the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to move on now. In fact, we're going to start a series today that's going to last from today all the way through the end of the summer. One of the things that I love, well, there's a lot of things I love about the Bible, It's a unique book, inspired by God, written over thousands of years, by dozens of different authors. It all works together to communicate one storyline from beginning to end. But the thing I love a lot, maybe not most, but a lot about the Bible, is how God uses different types of literature, different genres, to communicate his truth. Just thinking about the sermons or the books that we've looked at since I've been here, we've looked at letters, right? 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that's that's an epistle or a letter. We looked at Ruth, that's a story or a narrative. We looked at Habakkuk, that's a prophecy. But there's one type of literature, one genre in the Bible that some people would say covers about a third of all the text of scripture. It finds its way into almost every book of the Old Testament, many of the books of the New Testament. And I think it's a genre that has a unique power to capture and to communicate emotion. And that is Old Testament biblical poetry. Starting this week and continuing all the way to the end of the summer, we're going to be looking specifically at the book of Psalms. And I'm excited to look at the book of Psalms. Because we meet God in a unique way when we meet him through the book of Psalms. If I wanted to tell Olivia that I loved her, she's not going to like this. (laughs) If I if I was bubbling up with affection for my wife I could tell her Olivia I have fallen deeply deeply in love with you. And that's true, right? I feel that. I can say those words she would know what I meant. Or I could say <laughs> I could say what Solomon says in Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 12 where he says you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eye, with one jewel of your necklace. Now what's more beautiful? <laughs> what will make her blush more? <laughs> <There> <laughs> Somebody get her water, that'd be good. <laughs> Poetry has a unique power to it, right? It communicates emotions in a way that our words alone can't. It goes beyond what words mean, to have this its own beauty, its own power. It communicates emotions so, so deeply. And so when we're trying to communicate the depths of our emotions, we reach for poetry, because it can do what words alone can't. When we listen to songs, when we listen to poems, they often are about deep emotion, love or heartbreak or joy or sorrow, because they have that power. It communicates what words can't. So it shouldn't surprise us when we open the Bible, when we open the Bible, that the Hebrew poets used poetry to speak about their God. It shouldn't surprise us that they used poetry to speak about a God who is so holy, so transcendent, so whole, so high and so lofty that he can't be described by words. Doesn't it make sense that they would reach for the tool of poetry to describe who he is? Over the next couple of weeks and months, when we look at poetry, we're going to get a uniquely beautiful picture of God. Not just of God, but also of the, li- the joys and the struggles of life. Because poetry has this power. And so I'm so excited to dive into py- poetry with you this summer. Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. This is just a little bit of a foundation before the series starts. But in English poetry, we use different tools Different, different forms than they do in Hebrew poetry. In English poetry, a lot of what we use is rhyme and meter, right? A rhythm. So English poetry sounds something like this. Return, return, O wayward son, for self-starvation's remedy. Delight, delight, for full am I of tonic of thine revelry. There's, there's that rhythm to it. There's rhyme. That's what f- makes the beauty in English poetry. A beauty beyond just the meaning of the words. But Hebrew poetry, it doesn't use meter, it doesn't use that rhythm, and it doesn't use rhyme. It uses different tools. It uses tools like powerful symbolism. It uses tools like parallelism. Parallelism being if you say something and then you say it again in different words, and then maybe you say it again in different words yet again, every time you say the same thing, the different words build upon one another and create a bigger and a bigger and a bigger picture. The Hebrew poets used this tool as a way to communicate amazingly beautiful pictures of who God is. Psalm 24, 1 through 2 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Do you see how they stack lines there? how he says the same things multiple times to build the picture bigger and bigger. The world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Sorry, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell within. He's building a bigger, bigger picture. We also see powerful symbolism just in these two stanzas. He says, for he founded it upon the sea and established it upon the rivers. He's saying God put land, what is immovable, what is permanent, What is solid on the waters. What is chaotic. What can't be controlled. An image in the ancient world of chaos. Our God is able to put what is solid on what is chaotic. He's put something immovable on what is movable. The symbolism, the parallelism, builds a picture of how great our God is. And this is typical for Old Testament poetry. So today we're diving into Psalm chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, please go ahead, open up, uh, up them up there. <laughs> we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 is the first psalm in the Bible, or in the, in the, in the book of Psalms, for a reason. Psalm chapter 1 is the place where we want to start more than just because it's at the beginning, but we're starting in Psalm chapter 1 because it really lays a foundation for everything that we're going to see in the rest of the Psalms. It orients our hearts and our minds as we open up this book together. And as we pick through this passage, what we're going to see is that the poet, the writer of this psalm, answers three questions for us. This is the three questions. These are the three questions. You might want to write them down. Who will be blessed by the Lord? That's the first question it's asking. Who will be blessed by the Lord? Second question. What does this blessing look like? What does this blessing look like? And then third, what about those who are not blessed? Who will be blessed by the Lord? What does this blessing look like? And what about those who are not blessed? I'm going to read Psalm chapter 1, and then we're going to pray. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor sits in the way of sinners, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this, this psalm is uniquely powerful to communicate deep truths that are too deep, too beautiful, too amazing for us to wrap our minds around, Lord. So we pray that you would work through the words of this passage, that you would work through the symbolism of this passage, that you would work through this psalm and all the psalms that we're going to be looking at over the months to come, to give us a better picture of who you are. Not not so that we can just understand you better, but that, that understanding of who you are would lead us to worship you for who you are that we couldn't read these words, that we couldn't pick apart these psalms without turning around and praising you for it, that it would lead us to love you more, that it would lead us to go to our word, the Bible, to find more about you and therefore love you more, Lord. We pray that this would be a uniquely rich time as we open up the psalms together. So Father, we give this morning to you, we give our lives to you, Father, work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm chapter 1, 1 verse 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The first two verses of this psalm, starting right at the beginning, it begins by answering this question, who will be blessed by the Lord? And it answers that question first negatively, right? First it says, who will not be blessed by the Lord? And it uses that tool parallelism right here. The one who will not be blessed by the, one, by the Lord is the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, the one who stands in the way of sinners, nor the one who sits in the seat of scoffers. It builds this picture of a wicked person, somebody who is not living in a way that honors the Lord. So the one who will be blessed by the Lord is not this person, not the wicked, scoffing sinner. But more positively, he says, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And again, and on his law, he meditates day and night. So the blessed man, the blessed one, is one who day and night, all the time, meditates upon, delights in the law. That's a strange way to say it, isn't it? We don't talk about delighting in the law anymore but in the old testament this is actually something we find quite a bit the longest chapter of the entire bible is found in psalm 119 and it is a huge worship song basically about delighting in and loving the law of the lord it's a powerful theme throughout the old testament and when we read this word law in this passage when we read about delighting in the law of the lord that word is the word torah torah and that word Torah is communicating more than just the Mosaic law. More than just the laws of sacrifice and purification. And how to live in ancient Israel. It includes that. But it's more than that. It includes everything that proceeded from the mouth of the Lord. Every instruction that came out of God's mouth. In other words, when it says law, when it says Torah, it's talking about all scripture. It's talking about all God's words. All God's words he meditates on daily so he delights he meditates on these things he joyfully deliberates on the words of god he merrily muses on the words of god he cheerfully chews upon the words of god he spends time soaking in god's word and is satisfied by it that's what it's talking about in these first two verses that's the man who's blessed And so that's that's all we see in verse 1 and 2. So rather than digging deeper into this, we're going to move on. Because it's going to give us a better picture of what this looks like exactly. But question number one, who will be blessed by the Lord? The answer is this. The one who delights in and meditates upon the words that come from God. That's the answer to question number one. But we're going to find question number two now in verse 3. What does this blessing look like? Verse 3, look with me there. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This passage he's using symbolic language, likening this blessed man, this blessed one. The one who meditates continually daily on the word of God, who delights in the law of the Lord. It's likening that person, comparing him to a tree that is planted by streams of water. Now, if we could put this picture up on the screen here, this is a picture of northern Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula. And when you look at this picture, I mean, the thing that stands out to you, the thing that stands out to me, is the amazing contrast in this picture. This is a region that is dead. It's barren. Everywhere you look, it's dead and barren and lifeless. Nothing can grow except right along the banks of the Nile River. If we need a picture of what it looks like to be plugged in to a river, (laughs) look at the flourishing, the abundant growth that's happening right along the banks of that river. What we see is this lush strip right through this barren land. And what it teaches us is that the only place that plants and trees can grow is when they're connected to a source of continual life. The only time that plants and trees can grow is when they have access to living water. The water that gives them the ability to flourish, the ability to live, the ability to grow. And so because they're planted by the stream, they're living, right? They're drawing water from the stream, staying alive. And because they're alive and growing, they're sturdy, their roots go deep into the ground. When winds blow across the the desert, the trees and the plants, they they don't fall away, they don't blow away. They're sturdy, they stay strong right there. And not just that, but because they're living and because they're growing, they're healthy. They do what plants do. They bud in the spring, they stay green in the summer, they bear fruit all the way until the fall. All this because they are planted by streams of water. They're connected to the source of life continually. And so looking back at verse 3, when we read that someone who is blessed by the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not water, wither. What that's telling us is that his continual meditation upon the words of God, his constant drinking from the source of his blessing, he is continually connected to the source of life, of stability, of health. He is like a tree by water that is alive, drawing his life from the Lord, from his law, from his word. He's sturdy so that he's not tossed to and fro by the storm's life. He's healthy so that he bears fruit. It's a beautiful picture. And at the end, when, what, the, what the author does is he steps away and he steps back from this metaphor of a tree. And he summarizes and speaks plainly at the end of verse 3. This is what he says. In all that he does, he prospers. I struggle with that. I struggle with that conclusion, if I'm honest. Because what it sounds like is God's a vending machine here. It sounds like if we put in a quarter of obedience, a quarter of meditation on his word, a quarter of delighting in him, We can push a button and out pops a blessing. But from life, we know that that's not what it works, how it works. We know so many men and women who love the Lord, who are walking with him, who are living in obedience with him, who are delighting his word, who still get cancer. Who still lose their jobs. Who still have rebellious kids, who still run out of finances, whose cars break down. Life teaches us, That it doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. In fact, the Bible teaches us that as well. Throughout the pages of scripture, there are endless examples of men and women who are faithful, obedient, lovers of Christ. And things go terrible for them. We think about Job, who was a righteous man who lost everything. We think about the prophets, who were the mouthpieces of God and were murdered for it. We think about the book of Ecclesiastes talking about how the wicked flourish and the righteous flounder. We think about John the Baptist, the most righteous man who ever lived apart from Christ, who was beheaded. We think about Paul, the greatest prophet, or sorry, the greatest missionary of all time, who was tortured, beaten, and killed for the faith. We think about Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who ever lived, who was murdered. Is that prosperity? It doesn't sound like it to me. So, what do we do with that? How do we wrestle with this passage that says, in all that he does, the man who delights in the things of the Lord, he prospers. I think there's two things we need to understand. There's two things to understand that if we're going to get a grasp of what he means by this man prospering because of his delight in the law of the Lord. And the first one is this. This phrase, in all he does, he prospers, it's a proverb. It's about, it's, it's a type of literature as well. A proverb is a wisdom principle. So it's a proverb, a wisdom principle, not a promise. A wisdom principle, not a promise. And that's an important thing to grasp. A wisdom principle given to us from the Lord bears a different amount of weight than a promise given to us by the Lord. Like a covenant promise. Something that we can hold fast to. And this doesn't make it any less true. It's still true that, we can, that there is endl- we can bear endless testimony to the fact that there are riches from walking closely with the Lord. We can still acknowledge that, however, in an infinitely diverse context of life. In a world challenged and influenced by sin, things might not play out the way that they ought to play out. In a fallen world, things don't always happen the way that they're supposed to happen. So the thing we have to understand with this expression, and all he does, he prospers, is this. It's a proverbial statement telling us and telling the Israelites that the life of obedience will absolutely result in a life of blessing and prosperity, but it does not exclude the possibility that different circumstances might come as a result of the sin in the world. And that leads us to the second thing we need to understand. It will absolutely result in blessings and prosperity but number two maybe we have a flawed understanding of blessings and prosperity maybe we don't really understand what he means when he says blessings and prosperity sometimes i wish god would ask me what kind of blessings and prosperity i want but he doesn't When we read passages like James chapter 1, verse 2, or Romans chapter 3, verse 5, and even to a degree, Habakkuk chapter 3, what we see is we we find these passages that tell us to rejoice in our sufferings. And when we find those passages, they seem backwards to us. They don't make sense to us. And that's because we don't truly understand what true blessings and what true prosperity is. We don't understand what a blessing from the Lord truly looks like. A blessing isn't necessarily found in a paycheck, in in good health, in in good reputations, in a perfect marriage, in perfect kids. True joy and true prosperity and true blessings are higher than that. They're deeper than that. They last far longer than that. We look forward to eternal joy and eternal bliss, apart from this sin-soaked world. When we are with Christ forever. The blessings of knowing Christ, the joy of knowing Christ starts right now and will last for eternity. It starts right now when we find joy in our Lord. Life in his name. And it will never, ever end. The blessings of knowing the Lord might not be what we would choose right now. But we are going to be happy God did things the way he did when we look back. So the second question is this, what does this blessing look like? And the answer is that this blessing is a life that flows through God's word, resulting in stability, fruitfulness, and prosperity, starting now and stretching into eternity. A life that flows through God's word, resulting in stability, fruitfulness, and prosperity, starting now and stretching into eternity. Now, in verses 4 through 6, we find the final question, the third question. And the third question is this. What about those who don't know this blessing? What about those who do not know this blessing? And in verse 4, we find the wicked contrasted with the righteous. Read with me. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now we've already seen a picture of the righteous. We've seen a picture of the righteous as a tree planted by streams of water, that's living, that's stable, that's fruitful. But now we see a picture of the wicked. And the wicked are are described as chaff. Chaff being the exact opposite of a tree planted by streams of water. When we were in the book of Ruth, we thought a little bit about chaff at that point. Um, What chaff is, is when you gleaned your fields, when you harvest your grain, you would bring it to a place called the threshing floor. And there you would beat it out on the ground so that the grain and the husks and the, and the stalks would all be separated. At that point, you'd bend down, you'd pick up all the grain, you'd throw it in the air, and as the wind is coming through, it would blow away what was light and fluffy, and everything that is thick and heavy would fall to the ground. So you throw the wheat up into the air that's been all break, broken apart into bits, and the husks, the chaff, blows away. And th- what falls back down at your feet is the grain. The fruit of the stock is left. And that stuff that blows away is the chaff. It's dead. It's useless. It has no purpose. The only purpose of the chaff is to protect and hold the grain until it's harvested. And after that, it's trash. And so while the righteous are described as a tree planted by streams of water, the wicked are described as chaff. Trees planted by streams of water are living, they're sturdy, they're healthy and fruitful. Chaff is not living, but dead. Chaff is not sturdy, but is swept away by just the slightest breeze. Chaff is not fruitful, but it's what's left over after the fruit is removed. So what this passage is telling us is a sobering, sobering thing. What it's telling us is that those who ignore the law of the Lord, those who ignore His words are the exact opposite of those who are blessed. Rather than living and fruitful and sturdy, they are dead. They're fleeting. And as we move on into verses 5 and 6, we see that as a result of their rejection of the word of God, they will receive the exact opposite of blessings. Look with me in 5-6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In the final two verses of this passage, the poet looks to the future and explains clearly and simply that our glorious Lord, who is merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, as we saw in Exodus chapter 34, is also the just judge who will by no means clear the guilty, who will by no means look at sin and let it go, who will not ignore those things, and that in the final punishment, all those Judgment, all those who have rejected him, all those who have spurned his ways and rejected his words will receive not a blessing from the Lord, but his wrath. And so the third question of this passage is this. What about those who do not know this blessing? The sobering answer is that those who ignore the law of the Lord, that is his words, are painted as the exact opposite of those who are blessed. And will receive the exact opposite reward. Now we have to remember. This passage was written on the other side of the cross. And that's important for us to recognize. But the message that life is found in the word of God is just as true on this side of the cross as it was back then. And I want to say that with confidence, not because the Bible gives life in and of itself. That's not what I'm trying to teach here. But what I'm trying to say is that the Bible is the very word of him who gives life. So life can be found in its pages. It's a source of life. It's not the substance of life. In 2 Timothy 3.15, it talks about the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll read that again. It talks about the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, the written word, the Bible, is able to give life because the written word leads us to the incarnate word. The written word, the Bible, leads us to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The one that John chapter 1 verse 1 calls the one in the, when when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This man, Jesus Christ, is the incarnate word of God, meaning the one who came into flesh. The one who is called the light of the world. He is the Son of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was made flesh, who dwelt among us, and by faith in his gospel work, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, is the only place that any of us will ever draw life. But we meet him through the Word of God. This points us to him. That's what this book is all about, and we need it. We need it desperately. So that faith in him, we are given living water. We will never be thirsty again. Because we will be endlessly connected to him. Our never-ending source of life. The written word gives life because it points us to the incarnate world. In other words, the Bible gives life because it points us to Jesus. So if that's you. If you have been pointed to Jesus and you have responded with faith, you are not dead, but you're alive. You are not tossed to and fro by every breath of wind, but you are sturdy. You are not discardable, but you are healthy. You will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You will stand on the last day, all because you are connected to the source of living water, because you have access to the stream of our Lord. But if that's not you, if you've never responded to Jesus Christ by faith, I want to tell you that this blessed life is open to you. It's yours to receive. That by faith, if you acknowledge your sin, if you acknowledge God's holiness, you acknowledge that your sin prevents you from knowing your God. And if by faith you repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ, you will stand on the last day. You will not be like the chaff, but you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. So be free. Let us commit to be people who let the scriptures, who let the word of God, the written word, lead us to the incarnate word. Lead us to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have been blessed beyond measure. (laughs) And that blessing comes from the simple fact that you have given us the written word so that we can have a means of meeting you, Lord. We know that the, that the Bible in itself doesn't save us, that we could read the Bible day after day after day and never find life. But, Lord, we believe that you work through this book to reveal yourself. So we pray, Father, that every week as we open this book, prayer hopefully more often as we're at home when we're with other people and we open this book, when we find the living words in your written word, Father, we would meet the living word in your incarnate word, that we would meet Jesus Christ and come to know him more fully. And we pray, Father, that we would be people of the book who point continuously and fully to you as our Lord, making your name great, Father. May that be the cry of our hearts. May that be the purpose of our lives. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.